Opera Philadelphia presents its latest award-winning world premiere, Denise and Katya, part of Festival 019. The latest, from Philip Venables and Ted Hoffman, the duo behind the renowned 448 Psychosis, Denise and Katya is based on a real-life tragedy that played out live on social media. This visceral production examines the vast public response to the events surrounding the violent deaths of two teenage runaways and exploring what makes us click in our age of conspiracy theories, fake news, and 24-7 digital connection. Denny's and Katya at Festival 019, September 18th through 29th in Philadelphia. Tickets at operaphila.org. Welcome to the Indie Opera Podcast. This is a special release of the first half of a two-part opera fix focusing on Opera Philadelphia's 019 Festival. To listen to the entire Opera Philadelphia special and other opera fixes, go to our YouTube page. In part one of our coverage of 019 Festival, Chuck Sachs talks with conductor Gary Thor Wado mezzo-soprano Daniela Mack, and tenor Alex Schrader about the production of Semele, and then with Jonathan Johnson and Wendy Bryn Harmer about the production of The Love for Three Oranges. Hello, everyone. How are you doing today? Hi. Hello. Hello. Great. (laughs) This production is a return for all three of you to Opera Philadelphia. What is it that makes you want to work here? I think it's such a great opera company. The idea of a festival is exciting. I, I love walking down the street and seeing my colleagues who are in other operas. I love the opera fans. I love Philadelphia. And the opera company is such a wonderful, um, humane, artistic place to work. They cast beautifully my beautiful colleagues (laughs) sitting here. Um, It's just a number one. So that was Gary. So Alec? Uh, I find the atmosphere really creative and even experimental, and I find that really fulfilling as an artist to, to feel, you know, at the ground level, a creation of the show, and not just of the character or the music, but really everyone in the room is contributing to making something. I think that's really cool. Daniela. Well, they stole all my answers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've worked here the most. I have, yes. I've done two productions here, and I love being here. It's really a family uh, company, mm-hmm. you really get a warm feeling, and everybody's just really supportive of the work that we do, and really all about collaborating and, like you said, creating something together. So, what is James Dara's approach to Semele? Is it more traditional, or has he updated the story at all? It's both. It's 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 maybe traditional through a modern take. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not. Um, too far from the text, mm-hmm. um, and yet uh, the ideas are fresh, and and it, there is a spin on it. Um, but the the essence of the characters uh, could have existed in this way all the way back in the original. So so it, it is an update, but it's not uh, against anything that wasn't there. So 
Am I correct in thinking that uh, Gary and Alec, have you done Semley together before at Seattle Opera? Yes, absolutely. But Very happily. were you also together at Opera Omaha with James Dara? Or just you? No. Neither of you? No, I've never, I've known James mm-hmm. for many years, but, well, not that many years, he's very young. Yes. But um, I have never worked with him before. We've worked around <laughs> each other, near each other, um, and so this is the first time I've worked with James. But I, I agree, it's a very interesting take, modern take on the story, but very true to the text, mm-hmm. which I think is exciting and will interest modern viewers. Then you are also both first time working with James? Yes. Yes. You're lucky. It's, <laughs> I've been watching his work for a while, and it's some of the strongest work coming out. Yes. No, he's, he's brilliant. He's brilliant, very creative, and, and very cinematic. I think he started out in movies, and so he has this mm-hmm. lens that he's looking at it through, which I think translates very well for modern audiences, mm-hmm. too. So what do you feel the story of Semele has today to tell today's audiences? Anyone? Well, I, I feel it's a moral story. Mm-hmm. It's um, a cautionary tale. Um, but yet it's, it, it's it, it like a comedic take on it. So it's a, a pill that will make you better, coated in candy, <laughs> so you'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, insightful, um, dramatic, very dramatic, and yet it, there's a very clear moral that you must be very careful of your ambition because unbound ambition is a dangerous thing. And we see this played out every day on the <laughs> international stage. So yes. it's a it's a tale for today. And then Alec, you're playing Jupiter and Apollo and Daniel, you're Juno and I know. E- I know, <laughs> yes. But so I mean in that one respect you're the kind of fighting married couple in that. What is that? I mean... We also play those roles in the opera. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you'll be here all week. <laughs> so what do you feel is going on there, I mean, between Jupiter and Juno? Oh, well, I mean, for anybody who vaguely knows the story, Jupiter's M.O. is to um, have these numerous dalliances and he's always looking elsewhere to fulfill his desires and Juno's sort of fatal flaw is that she's incredibly jealous and she does what she can every time to eliminate um, woman number you know 730 that who's he's, counting yeah well not me certainly <laughs> and 731. he just goes and creates like another demigod or whatever yes and the cycle starts again um but i think one of the most interesting things that i've discovered working on this piece and especially through james's lens um is that even though we're we are um discussing the lives of these gods the problems that they have are very very human and very relatable yeah their their immortality um makes this sense of uh Boredom's uh, boredom against excitement. Mm-hmm. So there is jealousy. There is you know cheating on a spouse. 
But if you look, if you if you understand that they've been alive for thousands of years, this is kind of just maybe a game mm-hmm. that they play with each other, and it never, it doesn't have to mean as much yes. as it does this time with Semele. This is a special one. Mm-hmm. This is a very important. So Challenge. often they're more like dangerous liaisons and playing cat and bit. mouse with right? off each other and mm-hmm. on off the people they're grabbed into their their circle. Yes, mm-hmm. but this time it seems it's to be in a lot more particularly this, this time. Yeah, and and because of the lengths Jupiter goes to to keep Semele, uh, all of which is for for nothing once Juno. Mm-hmm figures out the, <laughs> the trick, you know, and, and I think the fact that Bacchus is the product of this, of the relationship with Semele is, is really uh, significant. Um, all the other demigods never, never really became, you know, the next big thing. Um, and then at the end, well, we go, we're, we're back together. <laughs> Juno and Jupiter. For the moment. Yeah. Right. Right. So. Gary, do you have a preference for one opera style over another? I, I know, I've read that you frequently collaborate with the countertenor Lawrence Lipnick. Right. He's my husband. So. Ah, so, well, <laughs> so you can't get away from it. I can't, I can't. But that's not a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. No, um... Because that's know, mostly Baroque with him. Yes, yes. But you know the old um, 70s um, disco song, Love the One You're With? Yes. Love the One You're With. Um, I, I love the Baroque style. And really, in the Baroque style, every later style has its roots. So um, I, I've done every possible style of opera you can imagine. And the last time I was here, we did War Stories, which was Monteverdi's mm-hmm. Combattimento, which is mm-hmm. one of the earliest um, operas, if you want to call it that. And then we did a modern piece by Lembit Beecher, yes. um, composed as with, a companion That piece. was Lembit and Hannah... Oh, I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but... We yes. can insert that later. <laughs> it's fine. Um, um, it's... Moscovich. Anna Moscovich. Um, it's, I love Baroque opera. It's flexible. It's exciting. It's, um, you have a certain flexibility with the, um, how you do the improvisation, how you do the ornamentation. Mm -hmm. So I find it a very interesting style to work in, and it's very close to my heart. And, I mean, in modern day, it gives directors who trust the material a good stepping-off point to face the mirror on our, our times, too. Yes, absolutely. Because, I mean, there's so many frequently Baroque is about princes and queens and kings and, and royalty, not so much about, you know, just everyday people. Right, although I, I think Alec and Daniela made a very good point. Mm-hmm. You know, they're... They are gods and goddesses, right. but actually they're just humans. Mm-hmm. They're people with the same fo- foibles, and I think that's what Ovid's point was, and that's certainly what William Congreve, the, the librettist, his point was, um, that these are 
are people. They may have fancy jobs. Um, mm -hmm. And I think Congreve was um, making a, a parody of the royal family <laughs> at the time, um, pursuing all sorts of illicit affairs, and mm -hmm. then making the mistress the Duchess of um, South Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> so, and building her a fabulous mansion, but going home to the wife. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's uh, history just repeating itself. So, but that's yes. And Danielle and Matt and Alec. Now we know you are married. But where did you first meet? We met in San Francisco in the Marilla Opera Program training program for young singers in two thousand seven. Mm -hmm. um, and we met doing a production of. Uh, Rossini's Cenerentola. I was Cinderella and he was my Prince Charming. <laughs> oh. Um, but very professional. We absolutely were. <laughs> you say it like it's not true, but it's very it's true. It's actually true. It's yeah. important. I, I've watched enough people have relationships in productions and mm -hmm. you all want to run the other way. Yes, it can be like, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, if it goes wrong, yes. you're still stuck there. Yes. <laughs> And I've done it on tours. I've watched people do it on tours. It's like, you're on this bus. You have a choice. Leave, stay on the bus, make it work. Mm -hmm. For everybody's sake. <laughs> so a career in opera takes a lot of effort, but how do you handle, both of you, maintaining your relationship doing this? Well, I won't speak for you, but uh, <laughs> our relationship has always been the most important mm -hmm. part of our lives. Um, and now we have a daughter, and so she has... Um, she has taken precedence, I yeah. suppose, um, and so it's family and then mm -hmm. career. Um, and is your daughter traveling with you to the... She does, So yeah. is she, well, Barry <laughs> Banks' child is like 13 months, so probably a little too young. <laughs> she is four and a half, yes. almost four and a half, um, and she was born on the road. She, <laughs> this is her normal, you know, yeah. she, um, she, uh, she's very adaptable, as all kids are. Um, but we've been very lucky in that we've worked together quite a bit, sort of by accident. Um, and people know that we work well together, generally speaking, and they, they do their best to help us keep our family unit together. Do you have a favorite production other than maybe this that you've worked on together? Mm. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I know we just did Dido and Aeneas. Mm -hmm. um, through Death of Classical and Greenwood Cemetery in the Catacombs. Yes. But Alec was the director at yes. that point. It was a different relationship. Yes. Yeah. And I've been through that relationship with partners mm -hmm. where they're directing my work and mm -hmm. it's interesting. <laughs> you know what I have to say? I, From my perspective, I trust Alec and his aesthetic and his ideas so much and I'm a very big fan of the way that he thinks about things. Just read it from the script. Just, uh, yeah, oh, so stick to the script, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it wasn't really that difficult because I knew that whatever he was going to ask me to do, it wasn't going to be something that I was absolutely opposed to and I, I quite enjoyed that relationship. Me too. Yeah. And I mean, you were both getting used to seeing it at Catacombs. Yeah. No, it was, it was <laughs> yeah. kind of cool. It, it was. Spiders and moisture and yes. dead folks. And <laughs> dead folks. Those were the least of your problems, the dead folks. <laughs> so, was that the first production that you've directed? And if not, what made you want to start directing? Um, that was the third production that I've directed, but the first professional okay. production. And uh, I think I wanted to start directing. I've always wanted to direct, mm -hmm. I think. 
Um, but I, I had this little voice when, uh, when I would be performing that's like, well, if I, if I were, if I had the power, what I would do with this situation or, or how I would change it, you know? And I kept on having that voice get louder and louder until I finally said, okay, I, now I want that power, you know? And just like Semele, uh, what I did <laughs> was, was I conjured Jupiter, um, and it just, it's something that I find a little bit, mm, maybe not more fulfilling, but fulfilling in a different way mm-hmm. to tell the story, to be, to be in control of how the story is told mm-hmm. rather than just my one little piece. Mm-hmm. Working with James, working with Gary, it's very collaborative. And so my little voice, when it wants to speak up, I feel like I can, mm-hmm. I can, I can speak up, but that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And that becomes very frustrating to, to save that creativity for a later date, which may never come. Mm-hmm. So that really pushed me to 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 start directing. Cool. And it's like, I know what pushed me to start music directing and conducting was that I was working with people who were not as good as I knew I could be and were not using our time properly. Mm-hmm. So that was the first step. It's like, I'm going to do this better. and But also <laughs> that whole element of collaboration yeah. that, I mean, that goal of, your goal is to actually create this together, not just move here, move there, sing, you know. Right. Do and that's this. the story. Right. right. It doesn't matter. <laughs> just exactly. Do it. <laughs> I mean, and then you're just a puppet, and yeah. you didn't go into this become a puppet. Mm-hmm. And now you've been conducting, were you conducting from the beginning, Gary, or? No, I'm, I've had a pathway to conducting. I started out as a pianist and a collaborative pianist, and then I became a chorus master and assisted a lot of um, conductors, and and I I had a similar experience to you. I thought, well, I can do this, and I was lucky that I was encouraged. Um, I had very generous mentors that said, you should do this project. You should conduct this. I don't want to conduct this. Why don't you conduct this? And and that's very unusual in the conducting business. And so I was very grateful to that. And also in in Baroque, I, I, a lot of my first experiences were small Baroque pieces where you play the harpsichord mm-hmm. and you get a small orchestra around you. And so I was doing a little bit of both. Um, I mean, I love that best because you are part of the musical ensemble as well. Yeah. It's not just, not just standing in front of everyone, which it's, it's a bit of a remove, I always feel. Right. It's your part and parcel of shifting everything. Um, so in terms of new works, I mean, you're doing simile that's tr- sort of traditional canon. What has it been experiences? I mean, I know, Daniel, you got to do Elizabeth Cree. Did, yes. And what else? I mean, is that a, are you growing that to be a preference now to be able to do new works? Um, I love being a part of that creative process in that way. Um, to, I've done two uh, premieres now, Elizabeth Cree and JFK. And and with what amazing writers you got to Oh my on. gosh, yes. yeah. I, I really lucked out because they're brilliant. All four of them are brilliant um, people. And just to witness that rapport between composer-librettist and to have them be generous enough to ask the singers that they're composing for and that they're writing for what works for 
their particular instrument. That's just, I mean, you can't do that. I can't ask Rossini a question. I can't say, please rewrite this, you know. So it was an incredible privilege in that sense. And I love uh, old music, right? I love Handel. Mm -hmm. I love Rossini. But there's something kind of magical about being the first to create something and to put your stamp on it. You don't have this legacy that can carry a lot of weight with it. Um, you just kind of get to make it up as you go along, and that's that's really fun as a performer. Alec or Gary? I, I haven't. I've been close a couple times, but I've never... Songs. I've done some songs, I guess. Right. Um, but it, but I would love to. Well, hear that, composers. Call yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me. Right. Well, but you're... Teaching, you're also teaching at a school, a college, right? Last year I was full-time faculty in, at University yeah, of Notre yeah. Dame. This year I am not, uh, and I may or may not be in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's important to me to always have time to continue um, performing mm -hmm. or directing mm -hmm. or helping to create a newly composed piece. <laughs> and Gary? Well, I've, I've always done a lot of new works. I actually did a world premiere here at the Barnes Foundation. We did the world premiere of uh, chamber opera Biennale by Paul Richards mm -hmm. and a local librettist, Wendy Steiner, uh, which was great fun. And, and then we talked about war stories, yeah. Lambert Beecher's piece. And what about a Juilliard? I mean... What is your role specifically at Juilliard as well, a faculty? Um, it, it's a flexible role. Mm -hmm. I coach singers. Sometimes I work with chamber music players. And and then I regularly do projects. I do operas. and uh, But it's interesting to me, you know, in the history of music, people always did contemporary music. Mm -hmm. I mean, Handel was contemporary right. music. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I feel like we, we almost have a mission to keep doing contemporary works and growing mm -hmm. the canon. Um, I find that when you do a contemporary piece, you learn more about Handel and Rossini mm -hmm. because you understand how they made their choices and what their constrictions were. So mm -hmm. I love working on new music. And is there more of a connection between the Juilliard opera composers and the Juilliard opera program? Juilliard, I, I've been there, there 25 years right. now. I feel very grateful about that. Uh, Juilliard has changed so much. Um, it's a more welcoming, more open community. Um, they talk a lot now about a musician, an artist's mm -hmm. place in the community, and that the artist must have a sense of entrepreneurship and how they relate to the community. And of course, Juilliard is a conservatory, so mm -hmm. they have a drama department, a dance mm -hmm. department, and a music department. So now I feel, especially with our new director, Damien Woodson, mm -hmm. who's a dancer and choreographer, there's a lot more flexibility and a lot more... Um, Yes, cooperation between the departments. Like they just go to their own little fiefdoms, and I, I lived through that in college. It's like they would just look at me. Why are you over their music? Why are you over in the theater? It's like double major. Yeah, I'm yeah. doing both. You yeah. can. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's good to hear, and I, I love Damien's work, and I think he's going to do 
amazing things there. Yes, I think he already has. And there's this feeling that we're cre- we need to create and we need to reach out, whether it's doing Handel or a piece that was written yesterday. So my last question is, what is next on each of your schedules? Daniela? <laughs> well, I kind of know, but you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, two weeks at home to relax and recharge, and then we are headed to Minnesota for a Barber of Seville in, at Minnesota Opera. Oh. By we, she means us. <laughs> I, yes. I, I figured that one out. And Gary? Uh, the day we close, I go to Seattle to do Cenerentola. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's one of my favorite operas. It's just great. Um, in a wonderful production by Lindy Hume, where we set it in Charles Dickens' time. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. That can work well. Yeah, it's very nice. Well, it's been lovely speaking to you all three, and... For you taking time out of your rehearsal day. Sure. And thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. This is Chuck Sachs for Indie Opera Podcast, and I'll be talking with tenor Jonathan Johnson, who is seeing The Prince in Opera Philadelphia's own 19 festival production of Sergei Prokofiev's The Love for Three Oranges. Hello, Jonathan. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So, how are you enjoying working for Opera Philadelphia? So far, it's been fantastic. The energy in the room is is exciting. The cast are are filled with energy, and we're running around having a great time. <laughs> and this is your debut here. It is. But is this the first your first visit to Philadelphia? Or have you been here before? No, I've never been here. before. So your debut in the city too. That's right. Are you? Probably not now, but you'll get some chance. It's it's a great city. Yeah, yeah. I've been able to go on a few little walks around where I'm staying, but I, I hope to explore it more. If there's a lot of other things going besides, of course, the major history, historical sites, but things like the Bearded Lady Cabaret, and of course the Fringe is going on already all month. So, how are rehearsals going? They, they're going pretty smoothly, actually. Um, we have gone through the entire opera at this point, and we put up a basic skeleton first. So we went through very, very quickly. And now we're going back and refining the moments and and really developing the story more. So who is your character and what is the prince's journey? I'm, I'm the prince. Yes. And the prince is a hypochondriac. So we meet the prince, and he is laying in bed, completely inconsolable. Nothing can make him smile or laugh or... It, everything is bad. And so his father, the king, has gotten Trufaldino, who is... Barry Banks. Barry yeah, Banks, yes. the, the court jester, so to speak, to try and make the prince laugh. And none of it's work. So the king decides he's going to throw this big spectacle with these you know, two big pieces of entertainment that'll hopefully make him laugh. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, it, this is into the into the journey of the, of the prince now. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that does make him laugh is when one of the, the villains, if you will, of the story, Fata Morgana, shows up to the big spectacle, and Trifaldino tries to get her to go away. And in the scuffle, she's pushed over, and her her blouse or her underwear or whatever is seen. And the prince has never seen anything like this because he's lived such a sheltered life. And it slowly 
makes him just crack up with laughter. And, you know, the the king rejoices, and, you know, the whole court is just thrilled that the prince is now laughing. Well, Fata Morgana does not appreciate this. She curses him, that he will have this insatiable love for three oranges, and that he'll be searching forever and ever, and that will be the end of him. And so the king, uh, the prince, I'm sorry, is instantly struck with this spell and becomes obsessed with finding these three oranges. It's it's a huge turn for him because he's been laying in bed, not wanting to move or do anything. And now the king even says, what, what's happening? What's happening? Because he can't stop moving. It's this insatiable just want mm-hmm. and a love of these three oranges. And so... He hastily gets himself together and just goes. And and so he goes on this journey to find these three oranges. And and I I don't know if I should no, keep going or if that's enough. No, no. But I mean, so he's vastly changed and then does he do, does he come to a settling point by the end, you feel? Yes. Yes, he does. And is that because of love or I think so. I think so. I, I don't know how much I should I should go into it and how much I would Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's fine. Come and see the opera, you'll figure it out. That's right. So do you have any previous experience with this Prokofiev score at all? No. And in fact So this I, is your role debut also. It's my role debut and I'd never heard of it until it came across my table. It's another one of those I mean, Barry Banks is gonna do this in the Golden Cockerel later in Dallas and that's another What? Yeah. Um, so how long does it normally take you to learn a new role? It depends on, for me, the language that the mm. role is in. This one is in English, so the the language learning curve was buffered. Luckily, um, you got to it when they, it was finally in English, because Wendy just told me she had started learning it in French, because it's right. originally in French. But also done in Russian. Yes. I know. Go figure. Uh, because the only other opera that I've done in Russian is... Uh, Linsky in Onyegin. Mm-hmm. And that one, I'll use that as the perfect example f- to answer your question. Mm-hmm. For that one, I took a good three weeks just separating the language from the score and the rhythms and the notes and all of that. Because as opera singers, we are storytellers and we are communicators. Mm-hmm. And so the mastery of the language is vital because it helps inform how the composer set the music. Mm-hmm. So for that, I took two or three weeks only on that. And and I do like to start, whether it's German, Italian, French, with just the language, and then put it back with the music. And then learn the notes and the rhythms and get everything to gel together, coach right. it. So I like to have a good month to month and a half to really live with a role and to explore it. So... Is this production style very farcical? I mean, because it is, the opera is a farce. Mm -hmm. Is it playing just flat out? Is that what the director's gone for? No, he, there are elements of farce, but he really wants to tell a a journey, Mm -hmm. a a coming of age story. That one of, uh, Alessandro, the director, his big point when he was giving the, the talk at the beginning of rehearsal period was that the prince, until Fata Morgana curses him, nothing, nothing would send him on this journey. He would, he would not develop. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> she is 
kind of, if you will, the evil presence, but without that, nothing would have sent the prince on this self-discovery, mm -hmm. love <clears throat> journey, this coming-of-age journey he goes on. Mm -hmm. um, so that th that is, for me, my through line in this, is showing that. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there are elements of fun and you know, pointing and laughing and those kinds of things. But there is a, a, a real story in there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the prince is more, in a sense, of a grounded character, even though it's within this this farce that's happening, this crazy story. Mm -hmm. and, and he is a spoiled brat, this prince. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, we know a lot of those in modern day. <laughs> so, what do you feel, do you think, uh, how does this story talk to modern day audiences in that respect? That... From time to time, we, we encounter uh, rough, rough periods of our lives or obstacles or failures or setbacks, and those things don't have to tear us down. They can actually send us on a journey of self-discovery of our own lives to become more centered, holistic people. And I think that is, that's a big takeaway within this giant farce and all the spectacle and all of the, well, it is an opera, I guess that does make sense, kind of moments. So during your training, who are or were your mentors uh, during that um, as you were becoming an opera singer? Are there, is there a specific person or persons? It, it takes a village, as they say. Mm -hmm. And you learn a little something different from all of your different teachers and instructors along the way. Is there uh, some really important advice you feel that one of them gave you about building a career in opera? Mm -hmm. My first voice teacher, whom I studied with for undergraduate at the Townsend School of Music at Mercy University in Macon, Georgia, which is my hometown. Mm -hmm. I'm a Georgian. <laughs> um, she said, Jonathan, it's not going to be easy, but at the end of the day, you put in the work and then you say thank you for coming. And you give the gift. You give the gift of, of your voice, of the time that you spent, and, and try to tell the story. And that I always carry with me. That makes the most sense. Yeah. Now, I also I read that you uh, are touring with Chris Botti. Yes. What is that about? So, Chris Botti has done um, collaborations with Andrea Bocelli. Ah. And has performed with him at the Coliseum in Rome, and... So part of Chris Bodie's two-hour jazz and more, if, if you will, mm -hmm. program includes two selections that have a, an operatic classical stint. Uh, one is Time to Say Goodbye, Conte Partiro, and the other is Nessun Dorma. And so I do both of those mm -hmm. with Chris and a violinist and the, and the rest of the, the band. And it's a great show. <laughs> that, that would be fun. I mean... Two songs and you're done, right? That's right. <laughs> um, you might want to look into um, East Village Opera Company has a really wild version of Nessa Dorm Nessa Dharma that's very like world beat. Oh, all right. Um, it's uh, there's a, a male singer and a, a female singer in the group, and they do amazing. They're not really working anymore, but there are like three recordings out there, and it might be something that you want to hear that, for a different look at Nessa Dharma. Yeah. It's, I love their work. It just, like, they do an amazing When I Am Laid that it just oh. will, makes it into a contemporary piece as if you could hear it on the radio. All right. So, um, all right, I know we've got to get you out for a little more break before you go back to rehearsal. So, 
What's next for you after this production? After this production, I'll, I'll actually get to be home for a little while, which is rarer and rarer. Uh, but I'll be working while mm-hmm. I'm there. I have uh, upcoming symphonic engagements and uh, debuts at Opera Colorado and Opera Tulsa. What is, what's going on at Opera Colorado and Opera Tulsa? Uh, Opera Colorado will be, I will be Beppe in I Pagliacci. Okay. And that'll be a rolling company debut. Mm-hmm. And then... In, uh, and are they doing Pagliacci solo, or is it the pairing? I believe it's the pairing, but check their website. Okay. And for uh, Tulsa Opera, I will be Matthew in the Tobias Picker Opera, Emmeline. And that's also, that'll also be a company and role debut. Is that the son, Matthew? Yes. Oh, yes. yes. The Oedipus. The yes, the Oedipus. Yes, exactly. Wow, enjoy that. It's a gorgeous opera. Mm-hmm. It really is. I'm I'm very excited. I actually got to audition for Tobias uh, for the role and, mm-hmm. and just thoroughly enjoyed working with him. So I'm looking forward to seeing him again in Tulsa. Well, exciting. Well, it's been great speaking to you and have a great rest of rehearsals. Thanks. This is Chuck Sachs for Indie Opera Podcast, and I'll be talking with soprano Wendy Bryn Harmer who is getting her opera Philadelphia debut in the 019 festival production of Sergei Prokofiev's The Love for Three Oranges. Hello, Wendy. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So what role are you singing in The Love for Three Oranges? I am singing Fata Morgana. Well, that sounds really (laughs) wonderful. She's not subtle. Now, I know this is your opera Philadelphia debut, but it is also your role debut? It is. Well, that's exciting. It is. It's very exciting. I mean, has this brought you some extra, I mean, how long does it take you normally to prepare for a role? It completely depends on the role. It depends on the length of the role, the language mm-hmm. the role is in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, this is not a style I'm very familiar with. And are we so doing this in longer. English? We are doing this in English. It was written in French. Mm-hmm. It was a Russian composer written in <laughs> French. I because, started learning it in French. They sent an English translation and then actually revised the English translation quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of the third version. Um, but Prokofiev wrote it in French because it debuted in Chicago. And it was not... I, Russian I, was less accessible than French. And I, I know it had a bit of a history even getting on the stage yes. in Chicago. Yeah. Um, but here we're doing it in English. Yes. Which, which made the process a little bit faster. So, are you enjoying your time at Opera Philadelphia? And, and I am. Have you been to Philadelphia before? I have been to Philadelphia. I'm a New Yorker, so I've been to Philadelphia before. It's the first time I'm working here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love the city. It's a lot of fun. I have a son who's kind of a history nut. So and I, I kind of look town. at this as a very more European kind of city. It's yeah. a walking city. Very much so. It reminds me a little more of Edinburgh. Mm. Um, so, Fata Morgana is typed as the evil witch in the opera synopsis. But is she really? (laughs) I don't know. I think evil's a bit of a stretch. She's, um, you know, in this particular production, she's a little bit campy. She's a vaudeville performer, Mm -hmm. basically. She's, there is nothing subtle about Fata Morgana. (laughs) Not in the way it was written, not in the way it's being directed, not in the way it's being costumed. Every entrance is fortissimo. (laughs) Almost every entrance is above the staff. My very first note is a high B flat, and I hang out there for a while. Um, so it be, to kind of... It's like, I'm here, you mm-hmm. can't miss me. Yes. So she she likes to direct the action, um, but doesn't necessarily want anyone to know she's directing the action. Um, 
So, I don't know. Maybe I think she's a little bit of a misunderstood villain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's that woman behind the man. Yes. Making everything happen, yes. and they don't quite know it. And she's kind of all the things you want to say out loud and never do because you have a filter. Fata Morgana does not. She has, <laughs> you know, her wizard rival. Um, I call him talentless. He's not professional. He's terrible at his job. All the things we wish we could say to other people, but we don't because we're good humans who have a filter. And Fata Morgana does not have that filter. So, I, looking through your bio, I see you've been singing lots of Wagner and mm-hmm. Strauss and other operas of that type. Have you had a chance to sing more comedic roles like Fata Morgana? You know, the last time I did a comedic role, and it doesn't sound particularly comedic, was actually Vitalia in Clemenza di Tito. In the production I did, she was a bit comedic because they turned her a little into a mafia princess. And that was a lot of fun. It actually worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and that's not true. I, I do sing um, Rosalind in Flatermouse, which I did at Houston Grand Opera. I'm mm-hmm. on my way to Japan to do it later this year. Um, and that's comedic. But I love comedy. But Rosalind is a, is a lyric comedic, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, she's not... But her depending, sister, on, depending on the production. Right, but she's not her sister or her maid. Right. Which no. are really... Those are the really comedic ones. Yes. But, um, you know, occasionally, depending on the production, Ariadne, I get to be... Certainly in the prologue, Ariadne can be can come across because as Because she's funny. done as the diva She's done point, as a bit right. of a diva. Um, yeah. So it just, you know, as much as the role, it actually depends a bit on the production and the way it's directed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in a sense, this is... This production kind of... You just get to... Mm-hmm. Have a lot it's of fun of, and yeah. involved, you know. Very fun. So that's great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Um, now, I know you noted you've been part of at least four young artist development programs. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us which ones? And then, what do you feel that each program was able to give you? So the first one was, I was very young. I was in my junior year of my undergraduate, and I did Music Academy of the West. For two years, and that was hugely instrumental. Marilyn Horn really took me under her wing and kind of became my mentor. Marilyn. So, yeah, she's a dream. Uh, I'm still in touch with her. I adore her. So for two years, very early, I started as a Rossini mezzo. So Marilyn really... And Marilyn was the one who said, you are, in fact, a Wagnerian soprano, (laughs) but you're all of 22, so let's hang on to this Rossini mezzo thing a little bit longer. I then did um, Marilyn. Uh, San Francisco Opera and um, Lindemann, the Lindemann New Artist Development Program at the Met for three years. And that was really what solidified kind of my my career path and certainly my vocal technique and my, I would say, my my Fach. I went into the Met, again, kind of a little bit of as a Rossini mezzo, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but with the understanding that I was moving toward dramatic soprano. And the Met was the perfect place for me to make that change uh, because I had some really good guidance. So... Um, in that terms, who were, are your favorite mentors throughout your training and career? You've mentioned Marilyn, um, certainly Marilyn Horn. Horn. Certainly Marilyn Horn has been with me really from the beginning. Um, James Levine from my young artist times at the Met was very instrumental. Ken Noda at the Met. I've stayed in very close touch with him. Um, Bill Schumann as a teacher and mentor. Maggie Lattimore, she's a mezzo um, that I have a huge amount of respect for, also as a teacher and a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just Marilyn, it, it all kind of falls back to Marilyn was really the first. I mean, I know she she broke the mold of what mezzos and, and could do in the hands rolls and brought mm-hmm. operas back specifically for right. her. 
Um, so I get that would be a good one to be pushing you out into really different cons- repertoire, different repertoire and how to conceive a role. Right. And also just with the understanding that Marilyn, I, I don't have a very fast moving career, but I've had a very long, I started singing professionally at about 22 mm-hmm. and I have a solid 20 or 30 years yet in my fach. Mm-hmm. And Marilyn did that too. Marilyn, more than almost anyone I know, was able to, because of her solid technique, um, let a career marinate yes. for a little bit. She did not grab at every role that was thrown at her, and I've had the luxury of being able to do the same. And also the, the, the mentorship of Marilyn is, oh, don't do that. Yeah, I don't, I don't I know have any there are young singers that career. come out and they're shoved to those roles, no. and we don't know them anymore. No, we don't. I know a lot of people who made a Met debut and never came back. I had a very minor is not the correct word, but I, my Met debut was as a bridesmaid in Noce de Figaro which is not a particularly exciting or flashy role, mm-hmm. but I've had over 100 performances at the Met ever since, so in increasingly big roles. And so when people, especially young singers, ask you know, What would about be your, your favorite role that you've sung at the Met? At the Met, I would say my favorite role... Ooh, that's tough. It's choosing between Wagner or Strauss or... Probably a bunch of the Wagner. I would say mm-hmm. um, Valkyrie, the old Otto Schenk production, just holds a special place in my heart. Mm-hmm. Particularly because of the Valkyrie I was with, these were women who were seasoned mm-hmm. Wagnerians and seasoned Valkyrie, who mm-hmm. really taught me how to hold a spear and a shield. And I've had you know a lot of productions since, and a lot of roles since. And the new, you're in the new. Lepage, yeah, I've done the new Lepage ring now which twice. I, then I must have seen you in it because I. I was Freya. Valkyrie. I was Gatruna. I was Gerhilda. Yeah. Or no, it, the Met I sing were Linda, Freya, Gatruna. Mm-hmm. This past season, instead of Gatruna, I did Third Norn, which I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love the opening of Gerda Rung. And how is it working with that set? That set, I've been with her. I, she's a she's a grand dame. I've, <laughs> I've decided the set is a lady. Um, she's she's a beast, you know. But the no one but the Met could handle it the way that they do. Those craftsmen backstage mm. are incredible. Um, the stagehands, the technicians, the lighting designers, mm-hmm. the, the team there made it doable. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time we did it back in, I think it was 2010, there were a lot of kinks to work out, and they did. This last time we did it, it was mm-hmm. a lot more seamless. It was much quieter, the machine. Um, and I felt like, all in all, it, it worked better and it made a lot more sense. Um, but that is really a set that I wish could be installed somewhere. Um, Mm -hmm. it would work so beautifully in a festival situation where Mm -hmm. it's not being moved on and off the stage. The the trickiest part, I think, about the Met was that they needed to move it every night to put Traviata in or Bohem or something, you know, like, and to move that set means you have to recalibrate everything. It's such a technical piece. Right. It's why Broadway has a sit down if they redo the theater, Mm -hmm. like, uh, what was a great comet? Right. I mean, it sits there. They're not trying to switch not trying it. To so I, I wonder somehow if the Met could possibly do the the Lepage ring again in a festival setting at the end of a season. And just right. And just say nothing is happening but the ring for the next six weeks. And hmm. I don't know. I just, because I think that it would be a much more successful set. Right. When you're not moving it around, and the amazing men and women backstage working on it would be a lot less frustrated. Mm-hmm. So going back to your mentors, uh, yes. besides Marilyn, you talked about what would you say is the most important advice that some of your other mentors gave you and why? Um, I would say one of the 
biggest pieces of advice was to not take criticism from somebody I wouldn't have gone to for advice. That was a, that I was concerned about a particular criticism I was getting from someone in the business I didn't really know, but who I thought mattered. Mm -hmm. And I, I brought it up with one of my mentors at the Met and they said, would you have gone to this man for advice? And I said, well, no, of course not. He's not on my team. And they Mm -hmm. said, well, then why are you bothering what he thinks about Mm -hmm. you critically? It doesn't really matter. If it's not someone you would go to for advice, mm-hmm. don't worry about their criticism. Let it go. Um, Are, is there anyone that surprised you that you, you felt you trusted and their advice was not the right thing? No. No. There really wasn't. Mainly because I always knew there were people suggesting I should go to Europe and do a fest contract mm-hmm. so that I could sing all my roles. Um, because most of my roles aren't done often in America so if I went to Europe, and I just, I've always instinctually known that was not a good, mm-hmm. that was not a good fit for me. Festing in Europe was not a good idea. A lot of women my age who've done that, uh, or women with my voice who went in their late 20s came mm-hmm. back sounding 10 years older than mm-hmm. they are because they were singing roles too soon, too frequently, right. and not enough Mozart in between. Mm-hmm. So the greatest blessing, I think, of taking my career slowly and in the way I did was that I have sung a whole lot of Mozart between every Wagner and that's kept me nice and flexible I think good so I actually just have one more question so what is next for you after this I go back to the Met Um, Mm -hmm. I'm covering Peak Dom which I love Ah. I'm covering Lisa okay I love her I love her I love her also working on Katya Kabanova there this season. Oh, that's great. I'm, um, I'm going to see that. That's going to be great. You'll be there with Daniela Mack. Yes. You're, you're here, but not working together. We're not working together here. We've worked together before and looking forward to working with her again. What was the stuff you work you did before with Daniela? You know what? I honestly don't know. <laughs> there are so many of us that sort of just run in the same circles. Alec, right. Her husband, Alec Schrader, and I did flute together at least once at the Met. Mm-hmm. Daniela and I have not been on the same production. No, we were on the same production at the Met. Um... Rusalka. Ah. I was covering Rusalka, the mm-hmm. role of Rusalka, and right. she was singing the Servant um, Boy, I think. Yes. So that's the only time we've worked together at the Met, but we've worked together. I honestly cannot remember. And is when that I the new her. production of Rusalka? That's the new one. In the old production, I did The Foreign Princess, which I love. Wow. Well, I'll look forward to seeing that, and you and forward to seeing you as Fatima Garna and then in Kata Kabyanova. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Sure. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Opera Fix. You can hear more about O19 Festival in Part 2, and please check out our YouTube channel for other opera coverage. This is Chuck Sachs.